I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite academics and authors to get angry. The podcast where our historians drag out all the facts and study that we might be in too much danger of forgetting and make sure we bloody well take notice. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here alone this week as my good friend and long-suffering comrade in rage, Kyle, has been unable to make it tonight. So this week, we're diving back to World War II chiefly, but we are hitting on a subject that can equally be applied to a great many periods of history. To take us on a trip down a more complete memory lane, we welcome historian, author, and Arnold Bennett Prize finalist, Russell Phillips. Russell, welcome to History Rage. Hello, thank you for having me. Do you feel angry? I'm, <laughs> I'd say my kids were really good with dinner this evening, so I kind of like, I was quite chill, and then my wife did her best to get me angry again, so let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> I say you're sounding remarkably calm, but we can change that. Now, you came across our radar by contacting us directly, actually, with a range of things that annoy the hell out of you. Um, and for those of you listening who won't have been party to what we were discussing before we press the record button, that list has now increased as well. So, so you could probably look forward to Russell coming back. So first of all, can you tell us a bit about you, your background, work you've done so far and how you end up on, you know, on the second greatest podcast in the world? <laughs> I've been interested in military history for like as long as I can remember. I can't honestly remember when it started. I watched a, a lot of war films as a kid and I also read a lot, like, you know, war stories and, um, escape stories were a particular thing, mm. um, at the time, prison war things. And that was back then I was mostly, I was all second world war basically. You know, I'd watched the odd thing like Zulu and what have you that was set in other times, but yeah, mostly I was interested in the second world war. And then and my mum and dad used to go to London every November for Remembrance Day. So that's always been quite a big part for me as well. And that just, it stayed with me. My periods that I'm interested in have like expanded somewhat and I've flitted about quite a bit. And I've written several books now because I just, <laughs> and they're, they're frequently because like there are things that I want to get out there. I want to, uh, my books are frequently things that I think people ignore or should know about or people are wrong about, and I just want to mm. put them right. So, so you're a um, perfect fit here then, aren't you? <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. 
if I'm ever looking for a replacement co-host, then uh, that I should look no further. <laughs> so, so what what set you down the route of writing books? Because can your career, as you'd mentioned to me before we hit the record button, your career didn't start out in history, did it? No, I I've had multiple careers, if I'm honest. Um, I used to fix tellies. Um, that's what I started doing when I first left school. Then I was a poster for a little while, went back to fixing tellies, went to university to get a, a degree in computing. And since then, I've worked in IT. I've started my own business, um, helped people publish, and I that was after I started writing books. Um, the thing is, all through this time, I was I kept my interest in history, and I did a lot of reading. I wrote quite a few articles and things for magazines mm. and at some point decided that I should try writing books as well. And I can't even remember exactly why I made that decision. <laughs> <But> <laughs> they do say everybody's got a book in them. It's yeah. Getting yeah. mine out of me is the challenge. <laughs> okay. Well, let's say thank you very much for giving that and a sort of intro to the rest of our history of ages who may or may not have come across you before, but Let's let, let's get to the core of that anchor then. Let's light that blue touch paper. So you've come on here to do so, to talk something very specific. So Russell, could you please tell our pitchfork wielding mob out there what you wish people would just get over? I wish people would get over the the big headline battles of the Second World War and understand that there's a lot more to it. And in, in particular, that the people who died in the less well-known things are just as dead and deserve to be remembered just as much as the people who died in Normandy or at Dunkirk or wherever. Okay, so it's a, it's not so much a cheers for the little guy, it's a cheers for the little battle that that still costs some very important lives to very important people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, as a, at time of recording, we you know we are slowly counting down to Remembrance Day. So, so let's let's take Remembrance on. So I'm going to start off. Then I know we're going to come to some specific ones that cover the books that you've written. You know, a, a little later mm-hmm. on. But so, can you give us you know ideas of things that we things that we should be remembering? You know, give, give us some good examples of this. Okay. I mean, the the one that I knew um, growing up was was the Far East because I knew that the Fourteenth Army referred to themselves as the Forgotten Army. But also, like there's, they're relatively well remembered now. But things like um, the Middle East seems to be more or less just completely forgotten. And Greece at the end of the war, there were British troops in Greece at the end of the war, and like again, this is largely just ignored or forgotten and even within some of the the bigger subjects i mean the holocaust is like possibly the biggest um subject of the second world war and mm. we all know that like i think it was six million jews or something were murdered which is an horrific number but there were also like the nazis also murdered gay people and disabled people and trans people and romany and and like we yeah. just they just get forgotten. I mean, it's... 
Yeah, I can see, I can see. If you can hear these deep breaths going, that's the blood pressure going there. And I, no, no, I do get that. I mean, I have to say, when you, uh, you, you mentioned the Middle East there, I, I'd have to say I really couldn't think of much going on in the Middle East that was that. I can think of North Africa, you oh, know, so that sort of, sort of medieval, uh, some medieval, that's Mediterranean <laughs> campaign. But if you were to ask me to point out something that may have been, say, going on around the area of Palestine, I probably couldn't. I, I'll be honest. I, you know, it's not something that I know a lot about. I'm, and it was only fairly recently that I realised anything had happened much at all. But and that's part of the problem, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's not. I haven't ignored this because I didn't care. I just never came across it. It's just never mentioned so yeah. people don't know yeah those histories are not being recorded on being expanded and yeah and so forth okay so let's start with one of those forgotten atrocities then so it's one of the books that you've written is about one of these forgotten atrocities which is mm-hmm. Ladice. Uh, assuming i am pronouncing that correctly apologies to our czech listeners if i'm not i am sure you are going to come and let me know um, it is one close to um, Kyle's heart because he's from Stoke. Uh, and it is one pretty close to my heart as well because I'm putting together a presentation on the Hadrick assassination. But for those out there that are not as in-depth in it, and my interest in it is is not that in-depth, I have to consider. My interest has been in the assassination, not the aftermath, I'm sorry to say. But I should correct that. But can you talk us through this incident then and its aftermath? You know, for people that don't know how they're linked. So the the assassination was done by two Czech guys who'd been trained by SOE, um, named Kubis and Gabchik. And I don't really know if I'm pronouncing their names properly either, so I'm really sorry if I'm not. They ambushed him on his way to, to work in, in Prague Castle, and he died of his wounds some days later. The reason that Itza is, is connected is because it got implicated um, as a place that the um, somebody had hidden or, or been based while they were planning this, which actually came about rather bizarrely because some guy wanted to get out of a relationship, so he wrote a rather cryptic letter to his girlfriend, which didn't say that it was involved in the assassination of Heinrich, but heavily hinted at it. And from that, the Gestapo got the Laditza connection. By the time the atrocity happened, they knew that was that was a red herring, but they didn't mm. really care. Hitler was incredibly angry about Heinrich's assassination, and I suspect he was also scared, to be honest, because I, I think like, you know, he was... If somebody that high up could get assassinated, then, you know, people like him and him the wind are in the line as well. And Hitler wanted, heard about the Ditzer, and he wanted it completely destroyed. The, the phrase he used was that he wanted the memory of Ditzer to die. He didn't just want the people to die, he wanted the memory to die. He wanted nobody to know it had ever existed. Mm. So, they, the men were shot. The women were sent off to Ravensbrück death camp. The kids were, some of them were um, sent off to death camps. 
the ones that the Nazis decided looked German enough were sent for adoption with SS families um, and Germanization. And then the village was completely destroyed. As in, like, the, the buildings were blown up and set fire to, and then the rubble was taken away, and the skeletons were dug up from the graveyard, and the whole area Whoa. was landscaped. And the, the river that ran through the ditch was rerouted, and at the end of it, it took like, I think it took a year or two, something like that, but at the end of it, there was just no trace that a village had ever been there. So this isn't like Oberdossa Glen where you've got the ghost town that is left behind because there's nobody in it anymore. This is everything. Yeah. Yeah. Has just, gone from, from that, that town, that village completely. And they even like, they recalled maps and had them redone so that they didn't show the ditch anymore, which wow. I suppose makes a certain amount of sense in that, like, the village wasn't there anymore, so the map shouldn't show it, but it's... I don't think that's why they were doing it. I think it was more about, like, you know, just wiping it... literally wiping it off the map. Yeah, I mean, if you're not going to mark it on the map because it's not there anymore, most maps would have sight of previous... Yeah. You know, you you only have to look... You only have to look on an Ordnance Survey map now, and you can see, you know, sight of medieval village. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so forth. We're talking that's not even there either. No, the the whole point was just like erase all mention. So, how many people were sort of killed as a result of this? Taken out of taken out of this village. What was the population of Lidice at the time? The population of Lidice was about five hundred or so. So, yeah, it wasn't a wasn't a huge village. Um, all told, I think there was something like four thousand people. Killed in retaliation for Heydrich's assassination. Wow! So, so this spreads beyond the town itself, then, as well. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, there was like there were a lot of people executed in Prague, and yeah, Leditz was a was a very particular focus. But yes, there were they got really, really brutal with the yeah. with the reprisals. Now we've. I wouldn't say overlooks in terms of remembrance of that, but it hasn't always been the case because as your book goes into, there is, there is one part of the British community that, that really does remember Lidica. And, and did quite a lot in the war to, to rectify that. Would you like to tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So at the time, another, another feature of this whole thing was that they, the Nazis didn't try to hide this at all. They, they broadcast it. They filmed the destruction. And then showed the film in occupied countries, um, and broadcast reports of, of what they'd done. So it was, you know, people knew what was going on. And in, in Stoke on Trent, a local doctor called Barnett Stross, who worked a lot with the, the local miners, cause mm. it's, Stoke on Trent is a, a mining population and a potteries population. And they, between them, they set up a, an organisation called Lidice Shall Live, which was like you know exactly answering Hitler's Lidice Shall Die thing. Mm. And the idea was the the miners gave, I think it was a day's pay every week to the fund, and they organised collections. And the the point of the thing was to raise the money to rebuild the village once the war had been won. 
And this yeah. was in, this was in 1942 when, you know, it, I don't think anybody in Britain could be absolutely certain that the war was going to be one. You know, it was, yeah. um, it, <laughs> it wasn't certain. And, and that's one of my frustrations with this is that even in Stoke, that's been largely forgotten in the years since. Hmm. I think I saw an information board on it in a park uh, near where Kyle lives at the moment, which, uh, which was nice to see. Uh, yeah. But again, it, it didn't have a great deal on it as well. Well, recently there's been something of a um, an attempt to to um, get people knowing about it more, um, which is, to be honest, that's how I discovered it, because I was at the local museum with my son, um, mm-hmm. and somebody asked if we'd like to see a, um, a film, and she mentioned it, and like when she talked, started talking about it, I immediately thought of Borodeo Seglan and thought it was going to be the same. And then the yeah. film, like, it was up to a point, but then it went further. And that was, they were collecting um, promises at the time for the, she was one of the artists who made the, if you've seen the plaque, you may have also seen the, the sculpture that's quite close. And it's got representations of miners' tags. Mm-hmm. And you could get one of those tags and have your initials and and birthday on if you promised to tell two other people. And the idea was that that would help to spread the story. Right. Go and sign yourself up for a lot of tags. <laughs> that was me assuming we have at least two listeners. <laughs> well, this is like, I came home and told my wife about the story. And the first thing she said to me was, so you're going to write a book about it then? <laughs> I, and and then you did. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and well done you because like I say, if you if you want to talk atrocities, people are always going to talk Auschwitz. People are always going to talk Oberdeusser Glen. People are going to talk yeah. Baba Yar, and they absolutely should. But yes, you know, you're not going to get. I mean, you can't cover every atrocity that was out there, and no. there's probably even quite a few that we don't even know about. But those that we do know about, and this particularly, because it's not just one of those negative horror stories of the war. There's also a really kind of positive community spirit that that comes out of that you know this is this is british society doing what british society bloody well does well you know and we see that mirrored today with everything that uh, you know everything that the general public have done in in support of ukraine or in support of you know any other conflict nation that's that, that's something to be proud of and this is something that i think we really ought to shout a bit more about absolutely well Thank you for that. The moving, I mean, first of all, I'll just dive in there to say that if you want to know more about Ladici, because we only have a limited amount of time to cover on a podcast, but, uh, about this, then Russell has written an excellent book on that. And we are going to put links to that in the show notes as well. Now, the second book that you mentioned in your emails to me, we're moving on from forgotten atrocities at this stage and we're looking at forgotten battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, we're talking here about the battle on Madagascar. Now, this is a new one on me. You know, if you ask me to do about campaigns in Africa, it'd be all about the North. So anything South of Libya, I haven't got a clue. So can you talk us through this? Like what was its aim? What was its importance? What was its relevance? So it was a, at the time it was a French colony. And after the fall of France, mm-hmm. Churchill got, 
kind of um he was really worried about German U-boats and then later Japanese naval forces being based at Madagascar and using that to um intercept convoys heading for India because it's perfectly placed to for forces based there to to be able to attack convoys but they're coming through yeah. the series all around the Horn of Africa. When he first brought it up, Britain really didn't have the resources to, to do much about it. But he he never quite forgot it and he kept sort of coming back to the chiefs of staff and going, so, you know, what about Madagascar? And the thing that finally tipped it was that the Japanese and the Germans talked a little bit about it and the the Japanese had naval forces in the Indian Ocean and there was some concern that they could head further west and get to Madagascar. And the Germans, I think the German, one of the German admirals like talked to the Japanese about the possibility of that. And there was, there was an assumption on the Allied side that if they did do that, the Vichy French on Madagascar wouldn't be able to refuse any Japanese demand for, for bases. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, they'd been told by the Vichy government that if the Japanese did ask for bases, then they were to cooperate and help and, and give them. Also, um, Field Marshal Smuts in South Africa was very keen to, um, that Madagascar should be, be occupied because he was very aware of it being quite close to, to him. And he was really concerned about the Japanese threat. So eventually the, the decision was made and they, an invasion was organised for May, and again, this is 1942, so it's still, yeah, you know, things are not going brilliantly for the Allies. Initially, the plan was to take Diego Suarez, which is a, a huge port in a, a natural harbour in the north of the island, and just hold the northern part because that was the, you know, Diego Suarez was the bit that they wanted to deny to the Japanese, yeah, and. Churchill's phrase was something like he wanted it to be an asset and not a burden. So, and Britain didn't have a huge amount of resources and America wasn't willing to be directly involved. So that they invaded and they, they did take Diego Suarez fairly quickly. At, at one point, it looked like it could all go horribly wrong, but it all worked out. Mm-hmm. But, Fairly soon, um, it was realised that just holding the north wasn't actually tenable. It, doing that, it wasn't self-sufficient enough, so it actually became the burden that Churchill was so keen it shouldn't be. Yeah. So then they moved south and, and took the rest of the island, which took longer, and it was it was November before the whole island was, was under control. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So that's the, that's the short version. That's, that's, that's the potted history of the invasion of Madagascar. So what, when we talk about the people that we're not remembering then, I mean, what sort of, what sort of casualty levels are we looking at? When- it wasn't huge, to be honest. Um, I think, I think in the, totally it was something like a few hundred, um, yeah. British casualties. I think the French suffered more. <laughs> I always, it, it always feels a bit like I'm like, with the numbers being small, I kind of feel like I'm, you know, this isn't a, this is a bit rubbish of a thing to get angry about, but, they're still people, you know, like they all had mums, dads, sweethearts, yeah. whatever at home, you know, like they're still dead. You know, whether they died in Madagascar as one of a few hundred or whether they died in Burma as one of thousands or, you know, it just like they're no less dead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you, if you, if you die on, you know, D Day plus 10, Coming ashore yeah. in Normandy by either vehicle accidents or, you know, by enemy fire or anything like that, you know, you know, you deserve the, you deserve to have your story told, you know, yeah. just because you're not at the first wave of swords of white sector of sword beach, you know, go, going through the a sort of scenario that would make an opening scene to a movie doesn't mean that, you know, you're, you weren't important. You weren't doing your bit that that your story still needs to be told. And yeah, as military historians, hell yeah, the invasion of Madagascar is is as important as the invasion of France. It might not have had the same contribution to the overall war outcome, but if it's important enough to invade, surely it's important enough to study. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and to be honest, it's a, it's a really bizarre campaign, which it's really quite interesting to, to look at. And it had some really, some of the, the impacts are really not obvious. And, um, I can't say this wouldn't have happened because, you know, there's all kinds of things would have been different. But as a, possibly the biggest example, um, is that to the nuclear weapons program needed high quality graphite and Madagascar was a, a major source of that. And shortly after, like within a few days of the, the French surrender, thousands of tons of graphite was being shipped off to America. Now, if it hadn't been invaded, they might still have been able to get that. I don't know. You know, the, the Americans are on reasonably good terms with Bishy. So, but it's, it's not an obviously important place, but it does have, um, an impact it does have importance. You know, there are things like yeah. that that aren't obvious, but are actually really quite important to the the course of the war. Yeah, and I would say if you if it's important enough to say if it's important enough to send men to invade, it's important. You know, I don't think any commander, even the worst commanders, take those decisions lightly. You know, nobody's going yeah. to invade Madagascar 
just because it would be nice to have a sandy island. Yeah. It's got to have a point to it. Yeah. When we look at these things and, and, and almost like prioritize the remembrance and the commemoration that we do and the, the areas that we study, do you think there's an element of geography that enters into this? You know, if you look at Obadur Seglain is closer to home than Baba Yara or Laditza. Normandy is closer to home than, than Madagascar. Do you think that that goes some way to sort of contributing towards these things that we treat as more important than the others? I think it, I think yes, I think it has to be part of it. I think the, that's part of why during the war, the, the big, the men in the Far East called themselves the Forgotten Army because they were a long way away and it's, it's just easier to, to forget if they're, if they're not close, you know, it's, mm. there's not the same, there's not the same connection, you know, it, like, I mean, France is just over the English Channel. It, like, it's not far away at all. So, yeah, I think that's part of it. I also think, to be honest, that post-war politics, um, was part of it. Yeah. I mean, like, with Lititsa, for example, once the communists took over in Czechoslovakia, I think it was just, like, it was difficult to um, have sympathies and links with the Czechs because they were the enemy now, you know? Mm. Uh, and Barnett Strauss kept a connection with Lodice and Czechoslovakia pretty much all his life. And there were, that was viewed with suspicion. There were, there were rumours that he was a Czech, a Czech agent. And in Madagascar, we were fighting the French, which, I think the I think there was a certain amount of forgetfulness about that after the war. You know, yeah. it was like everybody knew we'd fought the Germans. You know, that was I mean we were on friendly terms with them after afterwards, but yeah. yeah, you couldn't get away from the fact that we'd been fighting them. But I think it was harder to to talk about fighting the French because like they were our friends at the start of the war. They were still, like, we liberated France. You know, we didn't, mm. we invaded Germany to, to crush the Nazis, whereas we liberated France. So, like, fighting French soldiers is kind of, it's, it's yeah, messier, it goes against that you know? liberation narrative if you're, yeah, if you're shooting their own people as well. I would possibly say, and this is just kind of <laughs> my ill thought out opinion, but I often see that. France has really, really struggled to come to terms with Vichy France. You know, you look at Germany and Germany has done its, done its best to come to terms with national socialism and what it did to Europe and the rest of the world. And I see France doesn't really want to talk about or confront Vichy. Yeah. Um, anybody's out there that thinks I'm wrong on this, then by all means, there's a history rage episode in the making there. If you come on said, but I just see that I pick up that impression that your France doesn't really want to talk uh, or confront the idea of Vichy and collaboration. And therefore, you know, it's a lot easier to, to sweep that under the carpet. That's certainly the impression that I've got. And yeah, I mean, if somebody, if you get somebody on to say, absolutely, that's, that's complete rubbish. You know, they've done all, I'd love to hear it, but certainly that's the impression I've got. Yeah. Okay. So what would you like to see done 
to start correcting this. We're never, we're never going to get it all. I know this, but. Mm. You're absolutely right. We're never going to get it all. We can't. But what I would really like in a, like in an ideal world, yeah. um, there would be documentaries and books and things about more unusual things, you know, like mm. not necessarily these sub like anything. Friend, I don't, <laughs> um, you know, like instead of another documentary about D Day, there'd be a documentary about something that's less well known, you know, something that yeah. people would actually watch and learn something completely new. That's yeah, you're not the you're not the first to mention that actually. <laughs> right back in series one, I think Catherine Wah said that you can you you can run into Lucy Worsley's thirty eighth documentary on Hampton Court Palace and Anne Boleyn. You know, yeah, uh, and yeah, so soon not. Um, well, we'll say that finally, given on the subject really of remembrance, given the sheer number of you know atrocities, battles historic conflicts that are out there where do we strike the balance okay now i know we're going to expand a little bit beyond sort of second world war here but when we look at something like the remembrance as it stands at the moment it's you know it's modern conflicts it's second world war it's first world war Mm -hmm. and there's all conflicts in between if i was to take my great grandfather uh william dixon forster was killed at the battle of climby ridge 1917 Never really met my grandmother, um, his own daughter. I was born in 1973. Our lives have not crossed. I couldn't honestly sit there and say, I can remember him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's where do we draw the line in what we remember and what we don't? You know, and are we, you know, are we using even remembrance as the right term? Uh, or is something like contemplation, commemoration, um, possibly a better one but where do you where do we draw that line okay who can we not commemorate i'm afraid this is where i get more or less certain i should say because i i just don't know i had this discussion with somebody um Mm. last week (laughs) because but it's i also think that it has to be a personal thing so, for all that I've, I've been arguing and getting angry about people, like, forgetting and not doing it right, I think that it has to be personal. And it, I really hate the term virtual signaling, but I, it shouldn't be about, look, I'm wearing a poppy, I'm a good person, you know, yeah. if you want to wear a poppy, fine, great. I will be wearing a poppy. I'm not going to stop anybody else from doing it. But if you don't want to wear a poppy, that's also fine. You know, if you, I would hope that you would be, you would remember in some way, but it doesn't have to involve a public display. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be anything that doesn't yeah. work for you. It's um, about commemorating. It's not about posting on Facebook that you yes. commemorated. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I get, I get really annoyed at the, so-and-so was on the telly and they weren't wearing a poppy. <laughs> so I don't think there's, there is a, a point. I don't think you can say like, you know, this is the cutoff because mm-hmm. I think it's going to be different for everybody. See, I don't remember my grandparents at all. My mum and dad lived through the second world war and my dad served in Korea. So that's kind of, 
the First World War has always seemed rather more distant to me, you know, because I didn't know anybody who had any personal connection to that. And I, the way I tend to do remembrance, some years ago I, I hit on the idea that I just, like, I couldn't remember everybody. I just, you know, you can't do it. So I tend to, the two-minute silence, I will pick a a group of people, effectively. And because I, I want something to, to think about during the two-minute silence, and I'll think about that. So it might be something like Forgotten Heroes, for want of a better way of putting it, like you know, people who who did something amazing but don't get the recognition, you know, aren't yeah. remembered. Which my dad's an example. But um Tell so, us about him. Okay. So he was he was in the Navy. He was on HMS Ceylon. And it frustrates me that we only found this story out after he died. Yeah. Um but they were they were on station. It was I think it was the first winter, because they were supposed to go home and then they got sent to Korea instead. And it was coming up to Christmas. So they sent a detachment of Marines ashore, ostensibly to look for insurgents and guerrillas, but they were actually looking for a Christmas tree. <laughs> and they they got back on board and went, well, actually, we like you know, we got this Christmas tree, but we we found this orphanage and there's these kids there and they're starving and, like, you know, we're not sure they're going to see out the, the winter. And so the... The ship's crew organised um, a collection, and the Marines went ashore again, carrying like loads of food and clothes and things, and gave them to the orphanage. And years later, some of the the kids found some of the and the um, what's the term for the. The ex-servicemen who'd been on Salon and. Yeah, the veterans. And thanked them. Yeah, the, the association. That's the. That's it. The, you know, the HMS Salon Association or whatever it's called. And, and thanked them for, for this. And like, and that's when we found out about it. I mean, that had been dead for several years by that point. Mm-hmm. And it's that, so like one year, I, I was thinking about people like that who'd done just like, you know, just, in the middle of a war, did something truly life-altering. Yeah, but you know, just like but in the middle of what were like the whole point is to kill other people. They were helping other people, and it doesn't get recognised. It's not in any of the histories, but they did it, and they helped. You know, it's just so. Yeah, so that's that's how I do remembrance now. I pick a group and and think about them, and. And even like, even then, like I don't know all the stories that that happened. Yeah, I know my dad's story now, but I bet there were loads of instances of that during the Second World War and the Vietnam War and every other war, but we never hear about them. No, so maybe when we find them, we share them. Do you yeah. have books? I have a podcast. I also have a living history group. Let's, let's get those out there. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for that, Russell. That's, that's broadened my horizons um, in areas of a conflict, and I thought I knew an awful lot about it, um, particularly the details we've mentioned. 
mm-hmm. is one that I have done some looking into. But Madagascar is an absolute new one on me. Uh, and hopefully on some other people as well. So thank you very much for bringing us The Forgotten Rage. Thank you. If you'd like to know more, then you uh, can and should check out Russell's excellent range of books, not just on the Second World War, but on wider conflicts as well. And we will have links to uh, those in the show notes. And you can follow Russell on Twitter at RPBook as well. And please do. But once again, Russell, thank you very much for coming on to History Rage. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for letting me get all that, my system. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel and Kyle is at Kyle G History. And if you're enjoying History Rage, then please consider joining the Angry Mob on Patreon because this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. £5 per month will get you early episodes. It gets you entry into all of our prize draws, the invites to put questions to future guests and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye.